Last night, my, my wife and I joined, uh, oh, a number of people, and we went out to see uh, Alex the Court Jester in Gardner, and it was quite, quite humorous, and it was quite a good time, actually, and I was amazed to see at how well he could control an audience and people and be able to get them to do what he wanted them to do. I was just shrinking back under my seat, hoping he wouldn't choose me to come up on stage. But it transported me back to a time in my childhood, actually, and, and what I want to do with you this morning a little bit, to a game that we used to play when we were kids. And so I want to engage you in that game this morning, if you're so uh, willing to do so. Remember the game Simon Says? Yeah, how'd you like to play? Why don't you all stand up for me? Yep, nope. The game hasn't started yet. Got some clever people here. Clever people. <laughs> all right, here we go. Now, if you mess up, you sit down, okay? Here we go. Simon says, clap your hands. Simon says, turn to the person next to you and shake their hand. Simon says, raise your right hand. Simon says, raise your left hand. Simon says, extend them over your head. Well, you're in a good place to worship God now. So bow down to him. Ooh, you guys are good, only a couple of you. <laughs> All right, you can put your hands down. Ah! <laughs> Simon says, put your hands down. Simon says, make a fist. With... Simon says, lift up your little finger. Simon says, wave. That's called a microwave. I learned that last night. Simon says, put your hand down. Oh, look out the window. Oh, you're smart on that one. All right. Simon says, put your hands together. Let's say a silent prayer. Simon says, open your eyes if they were closed and drop your hands to your sides. Yeah, you can do it. I said Simon says. <laughs> all right. You can all sit down now. Aha! <laughs> no, really, you can sit down. Aha! <laughs> Simon says sit down. <laughs> How many of us really listen? Uh, too many times, you know, we react to words in the wrong manner. We either follow words that have no authority or we ignore words that do. Now, I played this game to make you aware of how important it is to not only listen to words but to react to them properly. As a pastor, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about what you hear and how you respond to what you hear. I'm concerned about this for a very good reason. Because if God is ever going to be able to get through to us, through his word, through the church, through other Christians, then we're going to have to become good listeners. 
Is that right? What an obvious truth you say. But the reality is that most times we are not good listeners. These days, active listening is something that we don't generally practice, nor do we want to, because it's too much work. It's, it's much easier to simply tune out what we don't want to hear. Sadly, however, we've done that in a large extent to God's Word. And the proof of that is found in how you and I react to it. Hear what you hear on the radio, what you read. But in the text that we're going to look at today, oh, that we dealt with last week, actually, we saw that James set up the stage for the section that we are about to talk about today. In, J- in first, uh, verse 18 of James chapter 1, if you turn there in your Bibles, James talks about the word of truth that has fostered new birth. In today's passage, what we're really going to look at is we're going to be putting our faith to the test. James is going to do that. If we have truly been brought to life, brought forth by this word of truth, then we should respond correctly to it. James is about to press his finger right into our sternums this morning. Look at James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27 with me. Follow along as I read. Verse 19, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, This man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's a big chunk. We're only going to get through a little bit of it today. But from this point on, through the rest of the book of James, he shifts gears. It might seem that he's being hard on us, rattling our cages, so to speak. He's going to make us look at ourselves so deeply that there will be times when we definitely don't like what we see. And we'll try to close our eyes and shake him off. But you know what? It's not really James, but the Holy Spirit that's doing the shaking. And we don't like to stare at him because he looks right through us. His word penetrates us right down, to, right down to the center of our souls. We may close our eyes, but you can't shake him off, not if your faith is real. And that's the test. If we can hear the word and not be affected by it in some way, some small way, then there may be some serious questions that we need to ask about the genuineness of our faith. 
So God used James to tell us plainly that our reaction to the word reveals the reality of our faith. And there's going to be four ways that James says that we should be reacting to God's word whenever we're exposed to it in this text that I just read. We're only going to look at two out of them today. I plan on doing four, but we're not going to get there. I almost guarantee it. Two things this morning then that we should be reacting to whenever we're placed and exposed to God's word that we can use as a test to see if our faith is real. And the first one is in verses 19 and 20. And it's simply this. James says, react rightly. React rightly. This you know, my beloved brethren. James is feeling our spiritual wrists to see if there's a pulse there. And he's doing it right here in this first line. How do you respond to the word? Are there any signs of life? What are the signs of a righteous reaction to God's word? First, he says there's something to recognize. He says, understand this, my beloved brethren. This you know, my beloved brethren. He again exhorts them as a loving pastor as I do you. We all need to be drawn to recognize the regenerating power of the word. And so he's pointing us back to verse 18 where it says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren. But it can't end there. Recognition is only the first step in the process. If we truly recognize God's word has power to change us, then secondly, he says there's a way to respond. Verse 19 again, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's a a simple little chunk right there, isn't it? But very powerful. We say that the word is so powerful, but do we believe in its power? James says, if so, then we have a continuing duty as followers of Jesus to respond. This is an appeal to our will. When the word is functioning properly, properly, it demands our active cooperation in three areas, James says right here. The three duties of discipleship. Be ready to hear, be reluctant to speak, restrain your anger, as I like to say, perk your ears, zip your lips, and check your anger. The first duty of discipleship in James' time was being swift to hear. Why? Because the New Testament wasn't written down yet. As a matter of fact, James may be the first book that was written in the New Testament. So people would have to perk their ears and listen intently. They listened basically to sermons just like you're doing now. We listen. I hope you listen. But the question is, do we really hear? In their more open context of preaching, they might have had a tendency to react immediately to what the teacher was saying if they didn't agree with it. So they'd just jump right up and disagree without even taking time to think about it. And that's why James follows up with the caution of being slow to speak. And we need this today. 
Because we often reject what is said quickly because it steps on our toes, and we, we may even react angrily to it. At that point, everything else that is said just gets tuned out, doesn't it? James says to listen eagerly to the message of the word whenever you're exposed to it. Are you eager to hear God's word this morning? Are you hungry for God's truth? Even if you forget what I'm saying, what are you going to do with what God is saying to you through this living and active word? Because we're reading it, we're using it. One of my Bible college instructors' dad was a missionary to Pakistan. People would walk, he said, for three hours and stand in the pouring rain for a two- or three-hour service because they wanted so badly to take in the Word of God. Are you that hungry for God's Word? What do you listen to? We're so stuffed with Western preaching and Bible knowledge that we don't even know how to listen deeply to what God is really saying to us. We listen to so many things that we begin to only hear what tickles our ears. And with so much media available to us now, anyone who sounds like they have a good philosophy becomes the new authority. We give our ears to causes and ideas and heroes and the latest book or superstar because it's popular and we think it will solve our problems. But when the real word gets turned on and it touches that deep and that painful spot in our wounded soul, the hearing aid gets shut off. And we get angry and we bristle and we shut down. You know why? Because the word touches a source part that we don't want to be touched in. It's like getting slapped on the back when you have a really bad sunburn. Remember that? You know how that feels? Hey, buddy. <sighs> you react. You snap at the person who did it. But they didn't know. If we stopped and thought about it, we'd realize that they were just trying to comfort us and show us friendship, show us love. God's Word wants to mold us in that way, yet we're too argumentative to accept it for what it is. We need to learn to listen more and talk less. There's a lot of people that talk a lot of words. I know a lot of people that talk a lot of words. An ancient philosopher once said, we have two ears and one mouth, therefore we should be listening twice as much as we're speaking. And that's an old cliche, but I read a good one the other day. It said, if you ran as much as your mouth did, you'd be in great shape. <laughs> Many of us, says Erwin Lutzer, are quick to speak because we want to hear the sound of our own voices. It's not because we have anything to say. We just like listening to ourselves. Furthermore, we are having a conversation with someone we are not slow to hear because we don't care what his or her story is. All that matters is our story and what we want to say. It's sad, but it's true, isn't it? You want to know something? A talker can't hear what anyone else is saying, and he certainly can't hear what God is trying to say to him. James says, listen and think before you open your mouth and make a fool of yourself. He's not saying don't talk. He's just saying make sure that what you say is wise. 
Even today, James gives wise social and political counsel. I'd love to hear him writing a letter to what's going on in our world today. I know what he'd say. He'd say, hey, be quick to hear and slow to tweet. (laughs) Wouldn't he? Proverbs 17, verses 27 and 28 says, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. See, not only do we need to open our ears more and our mouths less, but we need, James says, to be slow to anger. Slow to anger. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about a deep-seated anger. It's more than just a a quick flare-up or displeasure. This is an attitude of resentment that James is talking about. And that is not an attitude of faith, is it? James is not saying that all anger is bad. There is such a thing as righteous anger when we're mad at the things that God is mad at, amen? But righteous anger may give way to unrighteous behavior if we don't think it through. I'm going to make a statement now, and I want you to think about it all week long. God is not necessarily mad at everything you think he is. And we should think that through. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You know why? He says, don't give the devil an opportunity. Proverbs 14, 29, and I love the way the message puts it. I don't usually, you know, use the message as a theological translation, but sometimes it gives great color to the verses that it paraphrases. And this is one of those times. Proverbs 14, 29 says this, slowness to anger makes for deep understanding. A quick-tempered person stockpiles stupidity. That says it all. Someone has said that anger is the wind which blows out the lamp of the mind. Human anger closes the mind down to God's truth and we are no longer open to what God wants to tell us. James is giving us wise advice here. It's wisdom. This is one of the reasons why this book is referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament because it is wisdom. Proverbs repeatedly warns, if you read it, against the foolishness of not listening, of speaking before thinking and losing one's temper because of it. So how do we react rightly to the Word of God when we're confronted by the Word of God? James says, first of all, be ready to listen, be reluctant to speak, and restrain your anger. Oh, and one more thing. Verse 20 says there's a reason behind this. What's it say? For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Anger never produces the righteousness God desires of us, nor does it produce it in others. Let me say this. Anger kills the spirit of righteousness. Both James and his brother Jesus knew this. James chapter 3, verse 18, says it very clearly. 
And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in anger. Is that what it says? Sown in what? Peace. By who? Those who make peace. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Again, from the message. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with his brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you are on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Jesus never said, blessed are the peeved. Or blessed are the protesters. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen? Even if you think your anger is justified, Jesus never said, blessed are those that persecute others for righteousness' sake. He said, blessed are you when men cast insults at you, when you are persecuted and men say all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Anger is not the atmosphere in which God's righteousness thrives. The rule of thumb is simply to follow Paul's advice in Romans chapter 12. Look at Romans chapter 12. You know this text because I've preached on it. 12, Romans 12, verse 18. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There is only one place that the wrath and anger can be used in a righteous way, and that is when it stems forth from God because he's the only righteous one. And he will do it. So don't take your own revenge. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. In other words, do not overcome by evil. Don't be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Back up to verse 9, where it all begins. And this is really where it focuses. Let love be without hypocrisy. Yes, abhor what is evil, but cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. See? And James is going to get into that a whole lot more in future messages. So how do you react to the word? Do you really try to hear what it's saying? Or do you tune out what you don't want to hear? Are you slow to speak when the word convicts you? Or do you flare up and close your mind to what God's trying to say to you? Are you slow to anger or do you have an attitude of resentment? These are the revealing questions that James really kind of implies. When it comes to the word of God, we need to react rightly. So perk your ears, zip your lips, and check your anger. That's what he says. Secondly, 
James says here, we need to receive it humbly. Look at verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Notice James' next command. Receive the word. It's a command. He says an attitude of true faith is ready to receive the word, not just here and in here, but in here, where it can do some serious work. There's a condition to be met, however, before you can receive this word. Humility. James says, receive the word in humility. That means gentleness of spirit. It means meekness. I'm very surprised at how few of us come to the word with this kind of an attitude. Usually we're evaluating, not humbly receiving. I do it. I sit under somebody's teaching. It's the first thing my mind goes to. Is he going to be good? Is he not going to be good? Is he gonna, what's he going to tell me that I don't already know? That's what you're thinking too, right? James says there's a way to approach this word. First, he says, clean up. Clean up. Look at it. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, before we can deal with the word or let the word deal with us, we must deal with our sin. James says you've got to remove the filth. James is asking us to wash before we eat, basically. Weed the garden. Putting aside or putting away literally means to strip it off. The picture here is of stripping off dirty clothes. So what do we need to strip off? Well, he says all filthiness. That means every single instance of moral filth that we have engaged in. Anything morally defiling that's not characteristic of a Christian or a Christ follower. In other words, strip yourself of all that dirty laundry, take it off and stand before the Lord naked waiting for his cleansing word. Amen? The second thing he says is to strip off all that remains of wickedness. There is wickedness all around us. Anybody say amen to that? It prevails around us and in us. We must rid ourselves of it constantly. You know what I'm talking about? Did you watch Netflix last night? Did you browse your news feed on Facebook this morning? Did you see anything in those two places that was even less, a little bit less Christian than you'd like? then you need to strip the thought off before you can receive the word of God this morning. Strip it away. Did you argue with your spouse on the way here this morning? Confess it. Strip it off. See, we need to be stripped of this dirty laundry before we can be nourished by the word. Wash your hands for dinner is what James is saying. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Peter writes... 
Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. James and Peter are talking here not to the unsaved. He's taught, they're talking to believers. Puts it in a whole new context, doesn't it? He's not saying that you need to get clean before you get saved. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. He's saying wash up and receive the, what the word has for you, uncontaminated by a colored mind and heart. And here's the end purpose. You know what the end purpose of that is? It's love. Look back up a couple of verses in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, what? For a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Isn't that great? I love the way the, the scripture works like that. It just, just brings it all out. How many of you actually prepare yourselves? You have a routine of preparation before coming into a service like this. How many of you really spend time concentrating, searching your heart and your soul, stripping off the garbage, expecting God to touch you with his word so that you can love others? How many of you really come anticipating that you will be changed by the word of God? See, not only do we need to clean up, James says, but he says we need to dress up. Look at, look at James again. He says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility. Other places in the scripture, Peter says, clothe yourselves therefore with humility. Put on the working clothes of holiness, which is humility. See, cleaning up tends to make us aware of our deep need, right? So we come with a humble attitude. Not like the Pharisee that came and proclaimed to God all the good that he did, but like the publican who came and beat on his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner, the chief of sinners. That's the way we need to come. We need to be like children, teachable. Some people just aren't teachable because they know everything already. Or they think they do. They're not open to the teaching of the word, only the criticism of how it was delivered. Or they walk away from the sermon thinking it applies to everybody else and not to them. Oh, I think I'll get that message because I have a friend that could really use that. Now, there are good reasons to do that. I'm not saying not to do that. It all depends on your motivation and your attitude, you know. It's like, I'm going to slay him with this one, only I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let pastor do it. Or they walk away from the sermon, you know, listen, if that's the way you are, then James says you better reevaluate things in your life because that's not an attitude motivated by faith. It's not motivated by the faith of Christ. 
Ask the Holy Spirit to show you, is there filthiness in your life in any way, shape, or form? Or is there, as one translation says, rampant, out-of-control wickedness? James says, lay it aside with a humble attitude. Welcome the word. James says, receive the word. And you know what he's saying? Listen for your name. Listen for your name. Is God calling your name? Is God speaking this to you? Is he saying, hey, Russ, this is not for them. This is for you. See, God wants to speak it to you personally. Come and say, Lord, what do you want to say to me today? My soul is thirsty. My need is great. And I need to hear your voice That's the ritual you need to prepare yourself. That's all. He says that this word is implanted in our souls. When we were born again, the living word was implanted in your hearts and it took root. Now whenever we hear the word preached, the very life that's in that word implanted in us stirs us to growth and it's constantly able to save us from the power of sin. Amen? That's what James is getting at. He's breathing life into him into us. But even though it was divinely implanted, it requires our cooperation. It's just not going to do stuff on its own in order to be deeply rooted. We have a responsibility to obey it, to see where it's making us a little uncomfortable and to dig that out. It must be welcomed and acted upon. And in turn, that renews us and it does its work. You know, back when I was a kid, when I was a little boy, My dad had a bad accident when I was like two years old. He actually died and came back to life, really. He was one of those people that his heart stopped for like three minutes and then he was revived. And anyway, some of you know that, but years and years and years later when the technology uh, came around, his leg was never really healed right, but they put an implant in his leg that was electronically stimulated and it charged the bone, causing the bone to grow straight because the way that it had healed, it was crooked. They had to re-break it and put this implant in. This is what kind of reminds me of what James is saying here. Receive the word implanted, which is able to straighten out your souls, able to save your souls. The word of God will always change a person somehow, some way, when it's received in this way. Because Why? Because the scripture says it's living and it's active. It's living and it's active. These are not just dead words. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. And this living and active word cuts it straight right down to the marrow, right down to our souls. So anytime you hear the word of God, if your soul is prepared the way that James is saying, you will get something out of it. You will. Guarantee. There's probably no greater illustration of this than C.H. Spurgeon's conversion. Charles Spurgeon was converted as follows. One Sunday morning in January, 
1850. Snowstorm forced him to cut short his intended journey, and he turned into a primitive Methodist chapel in Colchester. And this, this is Spurgeon's words. He says, the minister did not come that morning. The pastor wasn't there. He snowed up, I suppose. And at last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. And he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he didn't have anything else to say. The text was Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, which says this, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And when he had managed to spin out 10 minutes or so of repeating that text over and over again, he was at the end of his tether. Spurgeon says, then he looked at me under the gallery, fixed his eyes on me as if he knew my heart. And he said, young man, you look miserable. And you always will be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. Spurgeon says, I saw at once the way of salvation. When I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to be. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had been rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. In that day, when I surrounded myself to my Savior, I gave him my body, surrendered myself. I gave him my body and my soul and my spirit. I gave him all I had and all I shall have for time and for eternity. See, you never know what the word will accomplish, do you? Spurgeon went on to become England's best-known preacher and one of the greatest preachers of all time and became known as the Prince of Preachers. He was like 16 years old when that happened to him. So I ask you this morning as we close and we go to this communion table, what kind of reception have you been giving the Word of God lately? React rightly, receive it humbly. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much for the power and the truth of your word and what it does to our souls when we rightly receive it. May we be people who prepare ourselves. May our hearts be prepared now as we receive not only the word that's been preached but also the bread and the cup which we will share in together, representative of the true living word, Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. Thank you that we can look to him and be saved all the ends of the earth. 
Come to us with power today, Lord God, by your Holy Spirit. Bring us to the place we need to be. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.